0: Good morning. I heard Children's Church was optional. I kind of want to go, but I don't think that would be smiled upon. Well, we have an interesting service today. We have the picnic coming up. There's a lot of things that are out of the usual flow of things. The good news is, for those of you who know how I preach, brevity is my gift. So that's a joke. You can laugh at that. That's not true at all. (laughs) But I'll try. Now, let me ask a question as we land the plane on this three-week series we're calling Devoted. On a scale of one to ten, how powerful do you feel? How powerful do you feel? Not right now, right after the swelling, you know, revelation song. We all love to revel in that. Think about tomorrow, getting the kids ready for school heading back to the office, getting cut off by somebody in traffic, those things that happen to us, right? Changing diapers, putting out temper tantrums, or whatever your chaos is, or maybe it's turning on the news or opening your feed and seeing what's happening in a place like Afghanistan. We're going to work and trying not to run afoul of the spirit of the age, demanding your compliance. How do you feel? How powerful do you feel the other six days a week? And we've been looking at Acts chapter 2, and we've been seeing that the church becomes powerful and is powerful to the degree, it seems, that they are devoted to certain things. We have spent the last two weeks discussing the idea, and this is our theme for this brief series, that a church filled with the Holy Spirit and power is a church devoted to the ordinances and to the ordinary means of grace. So if we want to be powerful, as we all know the church in Acts was, we know that it probably has something to do with the life that they're living week in and week out that's described for us in Acts chapter 2 here. But the key isn't in repeating Pentecost, which happened earlier in Acts chapter 2. That's an unrepeatable event, the arrival of the Holy Spirit. We can't replicate it. The key is not to go from one emotional mountaintop to the other with music or whatever it is that we use to sort of whip ourselves up into this elevated state. Now a good amount of what's happening in Acts chapter 2 is the Holy Spirit manifesting himself in strikingly ordinary ways. Sure, the apostles are performing signs and wonders, and that's in there in verse 43, but look at the other things that are happening. And The believers aren't floating around two feet off the ground. That's not what's happening. Supernatural power is in them, yes, it is supernatural, but it's driving them into ordinary things, things like prayer, fellowship, generous giving, joyful worship, and that's good because any magician can pull off the flotation thing, but only God can empower ordinary Christian life, which we know is not always as easy as it seems. So we've been talking about these normal ways that the believers devoted themselves to these things that God has given us for our good as a church, things like prayer, fellowship, and generosity that Ricardo covered the last two weeks. And we call these mundane things means of grace. That's a term we've used. And what that doesn't mean is that by doing these things, we rack up grace points for ourselves. We're not in a merit-demerit system with regard to salvation. Rather, we call these things means of grace because it's through these activities that God pours His grace into us, the type of grace that is simply His kindness, the type of grace that is His favor to sustain us, equip us, empower us, sanctify us, sharpen our affections towards God, and enable us to keep plodding onwards towards eternity. So the church we see in verse 42 is devoted to these things. This word devoted shows up six times in the book of Acts. It refers to faithful adherence to the newly formed community, commentator C.K. Barrett said. It also carries this meaning of persisting obstinately. So for those of you who are a little bit stubborn at times, like myself, let's devote ourselves in a way of persistent obstinance to these means of grace that are so strikingly ordinary. And we've talked about these means of grace the last two weeks, prayer, fellowship. We haven't focused on this other part of that theme statement for this series, and that's the ordinances. So what are the ordinances? It's all easy. The ordinances are things ordained by the Lord Jesus for his church, and they're ordinary things with extraordinary results. Now, we believe that there's two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and the first of those has already shown up in the book of Acts. They were all baptized on the day of Pentecost, and then they joined the church. That's the initiatory sign to join the visible body of Christ. As for the Lord's Supper, it goes by various names. Communion, the Lord's Table, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, which is actually just from a Greek word that means thanksgiving. And whatever meaning you assign to it, that's actually the only meaning of the word. I personally think it's good to use a word like thanksgiving. And it comes from Jesus giving thanks for the elements in Matthew 26. So these two things, baptism and the Lord's Supper, look ordinary on the outside. Getting a bath and having a meal. What's more plain and normal than that? But under the surface, you see that God is present in them and giving grace to his people in the ways that they need most. Sometimes people call these sacraments. That simply comes from a word that means mystery. We don't believe that these are magical things that have power in themselves to save a person, but we do believe that there's more to them that meets the eye. And so another one of these ordinances shows up in our text. 3,000 are baptized. And then in verses 42 and 46, we, th- we see this particular turn of phrase. Verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And then again in verse 46, Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So this is some real soul food here. This is serious What does the breaking of bread refer to? And we use the expression in English, breaking bread, just to refer to simple table fellowship. So is Luke just talking about they were enjoying fellowship meals together, just as we're going to do after the service, we're going to go and enjoy a picnic together? Is it that, or is it referring to what we call the Lord's Supper or communion? Sometimes when we read Scripture, we can make a couple mistakes. One of them is to read too much meaning into every single text that we come across. I'm convinced the error that we're more likely to make is in not reading enough meaning into the text. There's schools of interpretation that sort of teach you to to put the blinders on, to sort of handcuff yourself, almost go bobbing for apples in the text and only grab what the original audience would have grabbed in their context. But we have 2,000 years of interpretation. We have the whole of Scriptures to shed light on each individual part of the Scriptures and let the Bible interpret itself. And so I'm of the opinion... That Luke is referring to the Lord's Supper here, that his readers would have made that association. And other commentators, and people way smarter than, of course, myself F.F. F. Bruce, Murray Harris, John Polhill, Ajith Fernando, agree that this is a reference, the breaking of bread, to the Lord's Supper. But since Luke doesn't tell us too much about what's going on in the breaking of bread here. I want to dive board into a text where the Apostle Paul does address that in more detail, and that's 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, But notice, before we dive further into it, that whatever you do with this, whether you think it's fellowship meals, whether you see it as the Lord's Supper, whether you see it as both— which is actually the most likely scenario that is these things called love feasts that marked the early church. And Jude verse twelve makes reference to that, as does 1 Corinthians eleven, addresses some of the abuses coming from the fact that they were combining fellowship and having a good, hearty meal and having fun, with this serious thing called the Lord's Supper. But notice, whichever school you fall into, what's not happening here is anything like the Roman Catholic concept of the Mass a sacrifice, a literal sacrifice, like Christ offering himself on the cross, like the priests offering animals in the Old Testament. Roman Catholics, our friends, believe the mass to be a propitiatory sacrifice, and we see no hint of that here in this turn of phrase, the breaking of bread. So we will be dive-boarding into 1 Corinthians 11, and in that text we'll touch on three functions of communion that will guide our time here together this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, turn there In your pew Bibles, it should be in page 959, I believe. Don't quote me. It should be page 959, 958 and 959. And we'll start in verse 11 there. We'll read that in just a moment. But the thesis of our message today can be summarized in this way. The church is to be devoted to fellowship with the saints, feeding on Christ and profession of the faith by being devoted to the regular, reverent practice of the Lord's Supper. And we'll unpack each of those statements here. The church is to be devoted to fellowship with the saints, that's the first function, feeding on Christ, that's the second function, and professing the faith, that's the third function, by being devoted to the regular, reverent observance of the Lord's Supper. So we won't be able to answer every question that comes up with the topic of communion. Who should partake? Who should administer the ordinance? Uh, wine or grape juice? Those are the things we won't be addressing here, but the elders, of course, are available for your questions along those lines. Let's read the text now, and let's ask the Lord to guide and bless our time. So 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 17, Paul writes, But in the, but in the following instructions I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each of you goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have your own houses to eat and drink in? is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and the cup. And Lord, as we open your word this morning, we pray that you would open our hearts to receive wondrous things from your law. We pray that you would help us to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and we pray that there would be less of me and more of you in this message, that you would speak to your people and help us to obey and to respond in deeper love towards you. In Jesus' name, amen. Real briefly, a note of context for this text, since it's not where we started in Acts chapter 2. This is written in about the year 53 to 54 AD, so not long at all after Christ initiated the supper. We're talking no more than 15 years. And these love feasts, this combination of your fellowship meal, you know, your, your first century holy potluck with the Eucharist, with communion, is already happening, but there's some mission drift. So gluttony, drunkenness, all those sorts of things are happening, even while we're also partaking of this supper together. And Paul says it's not good at all. And it's so displeasing to God that some of the church members are falling sick and are even dying because God is lovingly chastising them, disciplining them, for the way that they're profaning this ordinance. By the way, it's interesting, just as a side note, that Paul here is quoting the exact words that we see of Jesus in the Gospels. So this idea that the Gospels are written far later, right, and that this tradition that Jesus is divine or that his death was actually sacrificial and not just symbolic, the idea that that emerged later, well, this text here is a good text to show that that isn't true, because here we have 15 years after the actual events, the words of Christ recorded, and in these words, Jesus is saying what? That his body would be broken for them. That Jesus self-consciously knew and preached to his people that he was to die a substitutionary death on the cross. So that's helpful for us as we defend our faith, but let's dive into these three functions here. The first function, and this is what undergirds those first several verses in which the Apostle Paul rebukes them, is fellowship with the saints. Fellowship with the saints is a function of the table. We've already discussed this. The Lord's table is not the place to indulge your appetite or get drunk. Of course, that's not usually possible with the little cups and the small wafers that we use in our particular church. But still, the point stands that it's not about you. It's not about you having a nice, private little moment. There's one bread, one loaf that's broken for the whole congregation, all the people of God. There's one cup that's poured out for all the people of God. This is why we all partake together at the same time. This is why we don't do it by ourselves in our homes. This is why we don't do it in life groups where the whole church is not together and present. This is one reason that coming to church in person matters so much, because online church, if you're providentially hindered for coming, that's an option to watch and visit, but to attend, to partake, to participate in the life of the church requires physical presence. And perhaps, by the way, one of the reasons that we don't currently enjoy, in the church in general, in our nation, in our culture, the type of unity that Christ prayed for in John 17, the type of unity that should mark us as believers is because we're not coming to the table together. It's really hard to hate someone that you've sat down and had dinner with, isn't it? At least I've found that to be the case. And at the Lord's table, everyone is on the same footing. Jew, Gentile, black, white, vaccinated, unvaccinated. Everyone is on level foot at the Lord's table. We ought to spend more time side by side, shoulder to shoulder, at the table together. And just think of what Jesus is communicating here. Remember the feeding of the 5,000 and then the feeding of the 4,000, miracles that are recorded in all four Gospels, which means it must be important for us. What is the purpose of that miracle? Was it to show that, oh, just be like that little boy, give Jesus your lunch, and he'll make more of it than you could of yourself? Perhaps that's a point of application, but the main point is that Jesus is the bread of life. John 6:35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And the point of that miracle and of the Lord's Supper is there is more than enough of Jesus to go around for all of us. And so we should participate in it, and not with this drab seriousness that we usually reserve for Good Friday, and sometimes we do that, and there's a solemnity that's called for, right? Paul says you should examine yourself. That should happen. But remember this word eucharisteo, or thanksgiving, from which we get Eucharist. Thanksgiving. Shouldn't it be celebratory? Shouldn't it be joyful? When was the last time you got people together over your house for dinner and you just had a solemn assembly together? Or, or don't, you, don't you enjoy yourselves around the table? Verse 46, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. If we don't get excited at the fact that we were Christ's enemies and now we're seated at his table, we're invited to dine with the Lord of the universe, then we're missing the point. And perhaps. If we were to observe the table with that in mind, we would be able to cut through some of the disunity, some of the pride that tends to mark our gatherings. Second, function. This will require a little bit more work. Verses 23 through 26, we see that the function of the meal is to feed upon Christ. we'll recap these verses briefly here. This is where Jesus says, excuse me, this is where the Apostle Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, broken, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. So, This text here and others like it; these were stumbling blocks for the early church, for Jews and Gentiles alike. They would trip over these words. Are Christians cannibals? You can say no. That's no, we're not. But there were many who wrongly understood it in that way. So, what is it that the Apostle Paul is saying? And there's a couple options, and this is where we have to do a little bit of historic theology, looking back through church history, looking at the right and the wrong ways in which words like these were understood. So, imagine a spectrum, and along that spectrum, there's close identification between the sign and the thing signified. In other words, the Lord's actual body and blood, and then the bread and the wine. And then over on this side, imagine total separation between the sign and the thing being signified. No connection or correlation whatsoever between the cup and the bread and the Lord's body and blood. So, spectrum, close identity, no identity together. Are you following me? So, along this spectrum, there's a variety of views. Over here on the far end is where we find the Roman Catholic view. Interestingly, the Roman Catholic Church, as much as it prides itself upon being the first one to the party, this view of transubstantiation, meaning that the bread and the cup, at the moment when that blessing is pronounced, become in terms of its substance, what it really is, the body and blood of the Lord. Literally. That was only formalized in the year 1215 at the Fourth Lateran Council. It doesn't go back to the apostles. And this is what was said in that council. There is the same priest and sacrifice, Jesus Christ, whose body and blood are truly contained in the sacrament of the altar under the forms of bread and wine. It only seems to be bread and wine. The bread being changed transubstantiatio, by divine power into the body and the wine into blood. So the substance is Christ's actual body and blood. So this close identification between the two. In 1546, the canons of Trent made this clear after the Reformation had rejected this altogether. They said, by the consecration of the bread and the wine, a conversion is made of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord, and the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. So they believe that Christ's body is literally present in the meal. That's number one. And then number two, they believe that it gets sacrificed again, and again, and again. We have many former Roman Catholics in this room. And those of you who come from the Roman Catholic faith know that going to Mass often Is important. Why? Because you're continually partaking of this propitiatory sacrifice of the Mass over and over and over and over again. In fact, the priest who stands there ministering it is called an altar Christus, another Christ. Blasphemous. This is a ritual work in their system that's necessary for salvation, and it's an efficacious sign in itself. Those are the words of the Roman Catholic Catechism. In the doing, it is done. By doing it, it works. It has power in itself to bring about the effect of salvation. We, as Faith Bible Fellowship Church, reject this. And further, we believe that taken to its logical extent, this is a damnable doctrine of demons that destroys the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ on the cross and replaces it with an antichrist ritual where the sacrifice is never complete and thus can never cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. It matters. Hebrews 10 says this, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And then this verse, Hebrews 10, 14, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We do not believe that the bread and the cup become substantively the body and blood of Christ. Now, another option, one step further on the spectrum, is the view that the reformer Martin Luther held, sometimes called consubstantiation. If you don't understand it, don't worry, nobody does, including Luther. (laughs) You can take the Roman Catholic out of, excuse me, you can take Luther out of the Catholic church, but you couldn't quite take the Catholic out of Luther. And he believed that it didn't become, but rather the, the presence of Christ was under the bread, and it was in the bread and through the bread. It was all around it. In fact, he once pounded on the table in debate with the other reformer, Ulrich Zwingli, saying, this is my body, taking that literally those words of Jesus. Jesus said, after all, it is my body. Well, if that's true, then how could it be that his body's under the bread? Why would he say then it is the body? It is the bread. There's a confusion in that view as well. Now, on the far end over here, we have what we credit Zwingli with, which is called the memorialist view. Very little connection between the sign and the, things, the thing signified. In other words, it's just symbolic. It's just representative. There's no connection other than what you assign to it in your head when you're thinking about it. And of course there is a lot of truth in that. It is symbolic. It is a memorial. Do this in remembrance of me. It is a memorial. Just as the Jews celebrated their exodus with the Passover meal. So we remember our exodus from sin and death by partaking of this meal. But If there's no connection between the two on some level, then how can Paul be so bold as to say in this passage here that they are guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord if they partake in an unworthy fashion? By the way, this is the reason, maybe, that we don't take it seriously enough today. You hear stories of churches that have replaced it with other things, with Doritos, with punch. I wish we were making that up, but sometimes we don't take it seriously enough. What if we took it just a little bit more seriously without being given to all of these extremes? Now, John Calvin is credited with giving us a view that's somewhere in the middle here, between Zwingli, but also between Luther. Now, whether or not that's entirely accurate is open to debate, but here's the way that he saw it. There is a real presence of Christ spiritually, not physically, spiritually, and it has entirely to do with the faith that we exercise when we partake. The Holy Spirit is in us. As we're exercising faith, expressing this faith, the Holy Spirit strengthens our union with Christ. We're transported into the presence of Christ. He's in heaven. He's not coming down. He's not on the table here. He's not in the pews in those little cups. He's in heaven, but because of the Holy Spirit and our connection, our union with Christ he enables us to experience that communion with the Lord himself. And so, Calvin wrote this in book four of the Institutes. Now, if anyone should ask me how this takes place, I shall not be ashamed to confess that it's a, too, it's a secret too lofty for either my mind to comprehend or my words to declare. And to speak more plainly, I rather experience than understand. So, it's okay to admit we don't totally understand everything that Scripture gives us sometimes, and that's okay. He says, I don't necessarily understand this. He says, therefore, I here embrace without controversy the truth of God in which I may safely rest. He declares his flesh the food of my soul, his blood its drink. I offer my soul to him to be fed with such food. In in his sacred supper, he bids me take, eat, and drink his body and blood under the symbols of bread and wine. I do not doubt that he himself truly presents them and that I receive them. So communion is not magical, it's not salvific, and yet it's more than just a bare physical symbol. There's something mysterious happening in it that we get to truly taste what it means to enjoy Christ and savor Christ. This is what the Bible fellowship articles of faith say. In the 20th article, those who worthily partake in this remembrance of him feed upon him to their spiritual nourishment and growth and grace, have their union and communion with him confirmed, and testify and renew their thankfulness and commitment to God, and their mutual love and fellowship each other, with each other as members of the same mystical body. And there's other confessions of faith that read in a very similar way. I encourage you to do research and to read them as well. But what's the point of surveying all four of these views here? And what's the point of this whole exercise? Uh, It's simply to recognize this. That by partaking in a worthy, reverent, repentant, unselfish way, remembering what it represents, remembering Christ's death on the cross, that we were sinners under the wrath of God— And that this holy God, in love, put forth his Son as the only availing, effectual, propitiatory sacrifice for sin. And that by identifying ourselves with his once-for-all sacrificial death, we're forgiven, we're freed, we're justified, and we're guaranteed the same victorious, glorious, resurrected state in which he stands even now in heaven as the risen, reigning Lamb. And that when we believe the gospel and partake with faith, and when we remember, we are feasting on the life of our Lord himself given for us. Amen? So if you remember nothing else, remember this, that Jesus is spiritually giving you himself every time we partake of the supper. He's inviting you up into heaven where even now he sits and we sit, even though we're sitting in these pews. In another way, we are already in heaven with him positionally in terms of the way that he regards us, and he wants to satisfy us. He wants to satisfy us with Himself, with His all-sufficiency. He is enough, so take Him in and be full. So, as we progress, we'll talk about what this means if you're here this morning and you're not a believer. But suffice to say for now that if you're not a believer in Christ, do not partake. Do not pervert this meal, referring to communion, because without faith, it will do us no good at all. We must combine it with faith. Another term that's been used throughout history for communion is that it's a visible word. In other words, it's not the word of the gospel preached in a way that you can hear, but it is displayed visibly for you. And you can see the gospel being acted out through it. What happens when you hear the gospel message, the good news of Jesus? What do you have to do? Believe. And what should you do when you see it acted out through baptism, through the Lord's Supper? You should believe. And that leads us to our third and final function of the feast. Paul says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. That's 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26. So the Lord's Supper is for fellowship. The Lord's Supper is a means by which we spiritually feed upon Christ. And third, the Lord's Supper is for professing the faith, for proclaiming The gospel. You proclaim, Paul says, verse 26, the Lord's death until he comes. So let's just do a little bit of introspection for a moment. We asked at the beginning, How powerful do we feel? Very often, not powerful at all. This is why we're starting Life Group series focused on evangelism. We started our group on Friday, and we confessed to each other. Sometimes I've got 30 seconds with a cashier. And I could say something of meaning that would point them towards Christ. Very often I don't, especially because I'm trying to tend to one of the little ones that's with me or whatever is happening in that moment. We're not great at this. And if we were honest with ourselves, most of us feel a low level guilt at all times for the fact that we're not evangelizing more. We're like Peter, being afraid of the servant girl. Only instead of being afraid of the servant girl, we're afraid of the servant girl and the coworker and the neighbor and the cashier and sometimes even the unbelievers that inhabit our own homes. But this text doesn't just give us a reason to feel guilty. It gives us a reason to be encouraged. See, when we talk about evangelism, and we talk about being a witness, we're so individualistic about it. It's about me and the people I encounter and what I say to them in that one moment, and all of their eternity rests on whether or not I say that one thing regardless of whatever else God may be doing in their lives. And we do have a responsibility. That's not to dismiss that at all. But here's what's beautiful. In Acts chapter 2, we see the same idea that through the breaking of bread, they were proclaiming the Lord's death. Notice verses 46 and 47 of Acts chapter 2, the text where we began this morning. They're breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are evangelizing. Maybe not in the most obvious way to those outside of this building, but we are making a statement. As often as you partake, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Do you want to proclaim the gospel today? Then partake of the supper. And as we do that corporately, and as we display Christ corporately, our children are watching, our spouses are watching, the neighborhood is watching, and the cosmos itself, angels and demons, are watching. Ephesians 3.10, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is shown to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. The universe is watching who partakes at the table. And it works. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Yes, the apostles were still preaching the gospel just like Paul—excuse uh, me, Peter was earlier in Acts chapter 2. But there's no mention of that here. God is doing the evangelism through the church living out Christian life together. And yes, they were also being faithful through the conversations that they had. I'm also sure at times they failed, as we do. And God was being an evangelist far more powerful and effective through the combined, collective, cumulative effect of their observance of these ordinary means of grace and these ordinances together. And so we can be encouraged. God was being the most effective evangelist. So as we conclude, it's normal for us at Faith Bible Fellowship Church to partake in the Lord's Supper monthly. We do that on the last excuse me, the first, I don't even know anymore. Is it the last or the first? It's the first. Thank you, Wes. There you go. But we do that once a month. And through meditating on these truths over the last several months, though, the leadership of the church has become more and more convinced and convicted by texts like these that there's blessing for us if we partake more and more regularly, that there's more grace and empowering that can happen if we are devoting ourselves. To this ordinance in particular. And so in the weeks ahead, Pastor Wes and the elders will be talking more about what it means for us to practice this more often, even weekly. But the question with that is, well, won't that become stale? Won't that get old? And we're sensitive to that critique. But at the same time, let me lovingly challenge you if that's a question that you're asking. Does eating three meals a day, get boring and stale for you? Some of you are like, well, you don't know what I had for breakfast. I don't even know what I had because I forgot it. It was boring. I had a bowl of Cheerios. They were dry, ran out of milk. But your body remembers, right? And if you skip one or two or three or four meals, your body reminds you, does it not? Now, we don't feel the same way about physical nourishment. Why would we feel so differently about spiritual nourishment to parents of children especially the teachers that are here maybe you had the summer off with your children do you ever feel like you're spending too much quality time with your kids and it's getting stale have you ever had that thought oh, we're just just need to dial this back a little bit i really need to be absent more <laughs> the thought never crosses our minds married couples do you ever feel like hey you know what would really ignite our marriage is if we spent less special time together have you ever had that thought? Don't answer that. <laughs> for most of us in the room, the answer to that is also no—that that would not deepen the relationship to refrain from intimacy. And yet, for some reason, we think that spacing out and being sporadic about the means of grace is somehow going to make it more special when we're with the Lord. I don't believe that to be the case. In fact, uh, John Calvin, who we've already referenced here, recommended at least weekly communion, he said each week, at least, the table of the Lord ought to have been spread for the company of Christians and the promises declared on which we might then spiritually feed. That's also from the Institutes of the Christian Religion, book four. Here's the bottom line. How often do you need Jesus? All day, every day. How often do we need to hear the gospel, see the gospel acted out through this symbolic act? Pretty often, because we default to works righteousness. We default to performance. We default to human religion. We constantly need the gospel preached to us and displayed for us as well. Let's remember these words from John 6 as we end. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And it's not about the eating and the drinking. It just means that those things represent the faith. By faith, we take hold of Christ. We receive his nourishment, his eternal life. Which is why if you're an unbeliever here this morning, you need to place your faith in Christ, not engage the symbolic act. But Jesus continues, verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven, and if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So today we want to fellowship with one another. We want to feed on Christ, and we also want to proclaim, as powerless as we feel, this good news to this neighborhood, this nation, this county, and to all at home and abroad who need to hear it. So, Father, we thank you that you have seen fit to provide for us this nourishment. We thank you that not only do we have the good news of Jesus preached, but we also have it displayed in a way that's sensory, in a way that we can experience and draw insight from. Lord, as we would devote ourselves to the means of grace, we pray that you would pour out greater boldness, greater joy, greater awe on this congregation, greater unity, And we thank you, Father, that though we were your enemies, now we're seated at the table with you. And so we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.